would to Judges chapter 14. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 12. And while you're turning there, um, this is part two of what I started last week. Um, as we look, we're going through the book of Judges and we're looking at Samson's, the account of Samson as he, he was leading Israel to deliverance. Um, last week, before we got into the sermon, I talked about the need to surrender our will over to the will of the Lord. Um, but that is a difficult thing because sin is so enticing. Um, and so I encouraged you to pray um, a prayer that I pray for myself and for others um, to hate sin. Um, and one of the reasons why that is so pressing on my heart and I think uh, necessary, a necessary prayer for the life of a believer is because Peter tells us that Satan is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to pounce on, looking for someone, um, looking at their weaknesses, just like a lion in nature would look for a weak being, like a weak animal in the herd or whatever so that they can target that one. Satan goes around watching, waiting, looking for our, our weaknesses and we, you and I are his targets. And so I think it is so, it's, it's such an important prayer to pray that God would help us to, t he'd teach us and put in us just an absolute hatred for sin and a more powerful love for him so that sin won't be so enticing to us. And we talked about this with Samson because Samson was somebody who gave in so much to the lusts that he had and the things that he ran after, the, the pleasures of this world. Um, and we're going to get into some more of that today. So um, let's look at our text for today, starting in Judges 14, uh, chap chapter 14, verse 12. And if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? You'll remember that uh, he is, he's decided there's a Philistine woman that he wants to marry. Um, they've gone down a couple times in chapter 14 so far, and, the, and he is down there for the marriage and the feast that is going to take place for a week to celebrate. All right, verse 12. He's among the, he's among the 30 companions that are Philistine companions that are, helping, that are with him. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. 
I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied, so why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast, so on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, look at this text this morning, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may we, Father, um, uh, again, understand the things about Samson that we need to avoid because there's so much of his life that, that we can learn the things to avoid in life. But we also know that Hebrews 11 calls him faithful. So there is something in his life that we also can learn and grow in. And I pray that you would teach us that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. All right. So, do we have the sermon notes up yet? Okay. The first point in your sermon notes is Samson's wife and in-laws are unfaithful to him. Samson's wife and in-laws are unfaithful to him. So in our text today is the fourth trip. I told you last week there are five trips that we see somebody take in chapter 14. This is the fourth trip to Timnah. And it's, it's devastating in more than one way. Manoah... His, his, Samson's father travels down to meet up with everyone for the seven-day feast that Samson is throwing for their wedding. And last week I speculated that perhaps Samson had eaten the grapes in the vineyard as they passed along when they were traveling on one of the other trips. Um, and I told you that that was total speculation on my part. It was just something I was wondering. But if, if there's any doubt about whether or not he broke the Nazarite vow by partaking of the fruit of the vine... Um, we can be sure in this part of our text that he did break that, that vow um, at the feast. It says that, he, first of all, he's throwing this feast, and it says um, that uh, it was a seven-day-long seven feast, and the Hebrew word for feast in chapter 10 is a word that's pronounced mista, and it me literally means a place of drinking. So the whole purpose of the feast was to drink. And so Samson was forbidden to partake of the fruit of the vine, whether it's in grape form or wine form or grape juice or, or even the seeds or the skin we talked about, uh, because he was supposed to be a Nazarite dedicated to God. Um, and yet he throws a feast, which the purpose of it is to, is to drink and probably get really drunk. While he's there... He proposes a riddle to the Philistines. Um, and 
Nobody knows about this except him, because remember, he kept it even from his parents who were traveling with him. But um, it's about the lion that he killed earlier in chapter 14. Um, because he had killed the lion, and when he went back late at a later time, there was a swarm of bees who had, who had set up shop in the carcass of the lion, and he took the honey out of it. And so, so this is his riddle to the people. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And the challenge is this. If the Philistines can solve that riddle in the seven days of the feast, he's going to give them 30 pairs of clothing. But if they cannot solve it, they will have to give him 30 pieces of clothing. And I want you to see this is not a cheap wager. Um, in fact, the Hebrew word for sets here, what it says, sets of clothes, the Hebrew word is also used in Genesis 45:22 and in 2 Kings 5:22 and in both of those cases it is it is something sets of clothing is paired with silver and that is given as a gift or or um, it's it, it's something that is highly valued not people at that time didn't have the amount of clothes that you and I have in our closet today so a set of clothes was expensive and considered of great value. So this is not a cheap wager that he's making, especially on Samson's part, because if he loses, he's got to come up with 30 of those, whereas the 30 companions, just, they each just have to come up with, with a set of clothes. Um, but the Philistines cheat to get the answer. They threaten his wife, and they threaten her family, um, and tell her that if she doesn't get the answer from them and tell them what it is, they'll, they're going to kill her family and burn their house down. Um, and so they, they get the answer by, um, by threatening her, and she gets the answer from Samson. Now, I want you to notice here, Samson's wife uses the exact same strategy that would eventually prove successful for Delilah later on in the Samson account. This man who was incredible, he had incredible physical strength when the Lord came upon him, seemed to be so mentally and emotionally weak when he was nagged to death. If he had only learned to draw from God's spirit for mental, emotional, and, spi and spiritual strength, as he drew from it when he needed physical strength. Um, but he, he was a weak man in so many ways. So he gives in, he tells her the answer to the riddle, and she in turn tells the Philistines. Which then requires him to come up with 30 pieces of clothing. So he makes a trip down to Ashkelon, that's the fifth trip in the chapter. He makes a trip down to Ashkelon. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and directs him and he gives him incredible strength and he strikes down 30 Philistine men so that he can give their clothing to the 30 companions that cheated him. Now, I don't know why he traveled to Ashkelon to do this. Um, Ashkelon was more than 20 miles from Timnah. So that seems like a long way to go to do this. 
I, I, and I don't know why. Um, I do know this though, um, with a temper like Samson's, that's a long time for that to just allow that anger to burn and stir inside him. Um, it's, it's been suggested that maybe he went that far so that nobody knew what he was doing. Um, but I just know that, I mean, I don't know how long it takes to walk more than 20 miles um, or maybe ride some kind of horse or donkey or whatever. But I know that it is long enough that, and I know enough about the human condition to know that when I'm angry and I'm by myself, it just stirs and stirs and stirs in me. Um, so Samson travels more than 20 miles um, with all of that rolling around probably in his head. And I, and I wonder, I've wondered before, um, I mean, I know he's mad at the 30 people who cheated him, but I wonder, like, is he angry with his wife? Um, I think he is, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But um, I wonder, like, did he ever get the full story? Like, did she ever tell him, I had to, they threatened to kill my family and me? Um, if, if she didn't tell him that, then he's just left to assume that she betrayed him. So he just married this lady, and she's already betrayed him. And if that was the case, then would he ever be able to trust her again? I, I don't think she told him the full story from what we do see in the text, and I think that's because if if she had told him the story, I think his anger would be completely directed toward those who threatened her and not necessarily toward her. But what we see at the end of our text is that after he delivers the 30 pieces of clothing to the, to the Philistines, he then heads back to go stay with his parents. Um, so he goes back to the land of Israel and stays with his parents. And we haven't gotten to it because it's the start of the next chapter, but we'll find out when we get into the next chapter that her father thought he hated her and, and that's why he gave her to be married to someone else. So my guess is Samson was angry with her um, as well as with the 30 companions. Um, so I don't know how, like, my question then in my, as I'm thinking through this text and just pondering things, like how would he ever be able to trust her again? And, it, and if that betrayal of trust wasn't enough, after all of this, when Samson leaves and he goes to stay with his, um, with his parents, the girl's father then gives her to be married to someone else. And so he's betrayed by his wife and her family. It really is devastating. And, and the really sad part is that in the chapters to come, things just get worse. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that some of this is Samson's own doing as well. All right, as we get into the second point, the first point was that his wife and his in-laws were unfaithful to him. The second point is that God is continually faithful to Samson. God always 
remains faithful. Even though Samson doesn't deserve mercy, God continues to show mercy, and he continues to show grace to his servant. Twice now, in chapter 14, it says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and was, had given him overwhelming strength to be able to accomplish that which the Lord wanted to be done. And so God is not done using Samson. God is not done, um, he's, he, he's not decided that Samson is no longer able to be his servant. He continues to show grace and mercy to Samson and continues to use him um, as his tool to deliver his people from Philistine oppression. But it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and so he's, he's still filling him with the Spirit at times. Uh, first, he killed the lion with his bare hands. That's in verse 6. And here in our text today, he killed 30 men by himself, and that's verse 19. I think an interesting point that we've discussed in here before, um, not during the Judges series, but in a uh, we've discussed it during the Acts series, we've discussed it during other things as well, is that what we see in the book of Acts, in chapter 2 of, of Acts, is that before Pentecost, Pentecost came on in Acts chapter 2, and that was when the Spirit came and filled all believers, and they had um, a big... Uh, there was uh, 3,000 people who were saved that day because the apostles were preaching the gospel um, in many different languages. But before that, God's Spirit did not dwell in people continually. That's one of the things that, one of the things that, like, I've, I've thought before, like, I would love, I, I, wish, I wish I could have what the apostles had to be able to look at Jesus and talk to him and, and, um, you know, eat with them and, and walk with them and, and do all those things. Um, but one of the things that we need to remember is that they, at that point when Jesus was still on the earth, they didn't have what you and I have. They didn't have the Holy Spirit continually dwelling in us. And in the Old Testament, that was not something that would have been understood by those people. Um, so God's Spirit has to fill people in order to accomplish what God wants them to be done. Now, when we think of Samson, just in your mind, try to, try to imagine what Samson looked like. When we think of Samson, I, we usually think of this big, strong brute of a man, um, and he's, he's usually depicted in pictures and movies as this just really muscular guy, right? And he may have been, but Samson's strength did not come from his own physique. So if he, was, if he was big and muscular and he was just this gigantic man, um, he may have boasted in his own strength. He may have assumed that his own strength was able to accomplish some of the things he did. His strength, however, came from the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, we see in both the situations with the lion and with the killing of the 30 Philistines that he needed to have strength to fight those in those situations, and so the text tells us, and this, it says the same thing in both situations, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. So rather than this big muscular guy, Samson may have been a scrawny fellow. He may have looked more like me. Um, 
most likely he was probably just an average sized person. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven, Paul tells the church in Corinth that God, God specializes in using weak things in the world to shame the strong. The things that you wouldn't think of to accomplish something great. So that's how Samson gets his strength. He may have been muscular, but he doesn't have in his human finite body the strength to tear a lion to pieces with his bare hands. That's when, when Samson needs that strength, God's spirit comes powerfully upon him. Now, when we compare Samson, not physically, but when we compare Samson's life to other people that God has called to lead his people, we see in Samson the complete opposite in so many ways. And so as we continue to study his life going through these chapters, we're going to continue to see that how God is faithful to him because Samson is, is the opposite of what we see mostly, um, not just in Judges, but in other people that God calls to be his servants. Um, his intermingling with pagans is something that the former Judges did not do, nor did they encourage it. His marriage to a Philistine woman is one of only two situations in the life of the Judges where a wife is mentioned in the text. Um, the other one is Othniel, so Samson is the twelfth and last judge. Othniel was the first judge in, in once we got into chapter 3 and started reading the accounts of the judges. Um, so the other one is Othniel. His wife was faithful. So we have this faith, the faithful wife of Othniel at the start of the account of the twelve judges, and we have the pagan wife of Samson at the end. The situations couldn't be more different. Samson did not, if you compare him to other, other people who were servants of the Lord, Samson did not have the same kind of walk with the Lord as the former 11 judges. Nor was he called a man after God's own heart like David. Nor was he a man of great wisdom to lead Israel like Solomon. So the reader has to wonder, what is God doing with this man as his chosen servant to deliver Israel from the Philistines? Like, not that God, not that you have to be perfect to be used by God because God uses imperfect people, but this is somebody who is outright defiant and, and does not have any concern, we talked last week, doesn't have any regard for the laws of God or for the commands of God. So, why has he used him? Well, glance back up to verse 4. Verse 4 in, in chapter 14. We, we covered this last week, but um, Samson wanted to marry this woman, and his parents were trying to dissuade him because she wasn't an Israelite. Um, she was from a pagan nation around them um, and he he was insistent she is the one for me verse 4 it says it's a parenthetical that the author gives us his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines 
for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So verse 4 tells us that God's looking for an opportunity to confront the Philistines. You got to remember, this is a different situation than all of the 11 situations prior to this. The people have become so comfortable with being slaves to the Philistines. They've become so comfortable almost to the point of being completely integrated into Philistine culture that at the beginning of the account, it says that God was, God allowed Manoah and his wife to conceive and this child was going to be the deliverer, but there is, there is no cry from the Israelites for God to deliver them. They don't even want to be delivered. They're comfortable with life. So God looks for an opportunity. He doesn't have anybody doesn't have anybody pursuing him. He doesn't have anybody who would be called like David, a person after God's heart. He doesn't have anybody volunteering, and nobody's upset about their situation in life, so no one's you know, trying to rally the troops. So God chooses a man who is going to be easily lured into the appeal of the Philistine culture and be lured by the beauty of their women to get on the inside. But I don't want you to miss the symbolism here because Samson is a picture in one man of what the nation of Israel had become as a whole. Abandoning the commands of God and running after the facade of worldly pleasures. So Samson is this symbol of what God's people have become. The disregard for God's commands and their absolute betrayal committing adultery against the Lord by running after other gods. Um, when we this is just kind of an illustration of what I think maybe Samson is dealing with. When we lived in southern Florida um, we took a trip down to Key West um, and so we were far enough south that we, we drove and uh, you know, it's the southernmost point of the continental United States. The Florida Keys, you know, are this, this string of tropical islands that come off the peninsula, and they, they go all the way down, and the last one is Key West. Um, so when we think of places like Key West, I don't know about you, but I picture palm trees and beaches and the ocean and sunshine and warm weather and relaxation. Doesn't that sound nice right now? Um, now, there was a lot that I enjoyed when we were there. We just stayed there overnight one night, so we were there for a couple days. There was a lot about Key West that I loved, and if I had an opportunity to go back, I would enjoy that. But the image that I just created in your minds would be dispelled if you were there and you walked out of the bed and breakfast that we stayed at right by the southernmost point marker, so we were really there. We walked out in the morning and there was sludge all over the beach that had washed up from the ocean overnight. And there were people using bobcats just pushing it back into the water so that the beach was clear but if you wanted to use that beach, you had to swim in 
sludge-filled water. And it smelled like sewage. It was, I've worked in a sewage treatment plant, and I've worked in a hospital. It was one of the worst things I've ever smelled. So this image of this paradise that you think of, you walk outside and you quickly realize that uh, sometimes the image you create in your mind is not reality. And then on top of that, the culture of Key West is becoming more and more corrupt with sin and with stuff that's just on display for everyone to see. And I think when Samson looked at the Philistines, he saw the advancements that they had in their culture, the te technological advancements. He saw the beauty of their women. He saw what seemed to be a prosperous culture. I think he saw a facade. It looked wonderful, like a wonderful life to be a part of. But when you get there, you and you experience it firsthand, you find that the image you had in your head is not the reality. His problem was he kept going back for more and more, and he didn't learn this lesson until it took something drastic in his life to wake him up and to see reality. Now, I reminded you of Judges 14.4, because God was using Samson's weaknesses to confront the Philistines. God was getting ready to use Samson, and in chapter 14, what we see is that Samson begins to learn more about himself and about his role. One commentator put it this way, with the lion, the young man discovers his gift. With the slaughter at Ashkelon, he finds its purpose because God was looking for an opportunity to confront the Philistines. All right, so point number three, I don't have any blanks in your notes. It's just a summary, so you can jot down whatever you want or nothing at all. But it's a summary of chapter 14. In chapter 14, I told you there are five times that we're told that Samson and or his family went down, and I put that in quotes because that's what the text says, went down somewhere. In the Old Testament, the authors, do, they don't speak about going up or down or over the way you and I use north, south, east, west. Once Jerusalem was established as the capital city, the people of the Old Testament would speak of going up to Jerusalem or going down from Jerusalem. God's presence dwelt with the people of Israel in the temple, which was located in Jerusalem once they established that as the capital. But God's presence in Jerusalem was not for Israel alone. The temple was there, and it was the place where people from all nations could meet with God. So you might remember Jesus quoting um, Isaiah 56 when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, right? And what we know from our Old Testament history is that any 
anybody from any nation could come and be a part of God's covenant people as long as they abandoned their old life and, and, and entered into covenant with God on his terms. So God's, the temple was a place where God, where God's presence resided with his people and people could come from all over and, and encounter God. Now, consequently, Jerusalem was the center then of all religious and social and political life among those who follow and serve Yahweh. Now, part of the reason that they would use the phrase going up to or going down from Jerusalem was because it was on a mountain. It was surrounded by deep valleys. And so literally you do go up to Jerusalem or you come down from it. But they did not talk like that with every city in the nation that sat on a hill or on a mountain. They only talked about that with Jerusalem. So the symbolism was that God was the very center of all life in Israel and you ascended the mountain to meet with him and to be a part of the religious, social, and political life that was designed by and built around him as their king. So because people of the Old Testament period did not have the Holy Spirit continually dwelling in them like we do, to go down the mountain in some sense is, is to depart from God's presence. Now, God can be everywhere and is everywhere all at once. He's not constrained by time or space. But his presence resided with his people in the temple so that people could come and encounter him. And so there is this symbolism in a sense, you go up to meet with God and you go down to depart from his presence. Now you'll notice that the five times that the author of Judges speaks of Samson and or his family going down, they're always traveling to a city in Philistia. They're always going to either Timnah or the one, the fourth, the fourth, um, no, the fifth one, Samson traveled from Timnah further into Philistine territory to Ashkelon. So all five of those, they're going, they're, they're traveling to a city in Philistia, and the text says they went down. It's a picture of Samson's life, who repeatedly departs from God's presence or from the location of God's people to engage in sin or interact with the pagans around them in their culture, practicing their customs, taking part in their sins that are abominations to the Lord. And I think it's a warning to you and I. God, God doesn't command the church to avoid interaction with non-believers because if we cut ourselves off from people, then we, how do we share the, the message of salvation? How do we share the gospel with people? So God no, doesn't command us not to interact with non-believers. Um, but we have to understand that when we interact with people who don't belong to Christ, we have to do it with caution because Satan is constantly laying traps for God's people. 
just like he did for Samson. Samson's whole life, there was a every everything we read about from chapter 14, 15, and 16, because chapter 13 we, we learn about him, but he it's mostly about before he's born. But chapter 14, 15, and 16, you read through that, and Satan lays one trap after another for Samson, and he falls into them every time. And Satan is doing that with you and I as well. So we need to understand Samson departs from God's presence, and he's not supported by the people that should be like-minded, should be following God's commands. And you and I are in a situation where we have the Spirit and we have a message to, to take to people, but if we, if we are not cautious about how we do this, we will find ourselves departing from God's presence and being lured into something that Satan has laid as a trap. And it's all too frequently that we hear of another church leader falling into sin, or we hear about church leaders and parishioners alike adopting false doctrines and straying from the truth, straying from the faith, straying from what we see in Scripture as clear teaching of God's Word. Now, we don't have to travel to Jerusalem and climb the mountain to be in God's presence because the Spirit is always with us, but we have to be intentional about allowing God and his word to govern our life. If we don't spend time with him, and I mean praying and reading scripture, but also learning and growing with the body of Christ, accepting godly counsel from a beloved brother or sister in Christ, and at times accepting rebuke from those people, if, if we don't allow God to have that that sovereignty in our life, if we don't surrender to his will, then just like a muscle that's not used, our faith will become, we'll begin to experience atrophy. And that's why it is so critical that we surrender our will over to the will of God. So I'm going to just close with this prayer that I've encouraged you to adopt. God, help me to hate sin. Let your love for me create in me a love for you that is so strong that no temptation can stir up a desire for sin that is stronger than my desire to surrender to your will. I'll read that again. Help me to hate sin. Let me let your love create in me a love for you that is so strong that no temptation can stir up a desire for sin that is stronger than my desire to surrender to your will. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. And we just pray, Lord, that, that you would do that work in our hearts. We don't want to be people who um, who long for the things of this world like Samson did. We want to be people who um, 
even in the midst of all of the traps and the snares that Satan is laying, all of the things that are worldly pleasures that look appealing to us, we want to be people who are, our love for you is so much stronger than any desire we might have for that. So that we can be faithful to you. May everything that we say, everything that we think, and everything that we do glorify you. In Jesus' name.